Welcome to the Global Careers Podcast, sponsored by GW Cyber, the source for inspiring stories from seasoned professionals who've embraced a global role and reaped the benefits. We offer practical advice and insider tips across a broad swath of industries and fields around the world. You know, whether or not you've considered moving abroad or taking on an international role, globalization will impact your career. So join us for a lively discussion as we explore what an international career really means. My name is Stacey nevadomsky Burdan, and I'll be your host. In season four, we travel around the world exploring what it's like working abroad in some of the hottest industries and best countries for advancing your career. Come with us as we journey through rich and diverse cultures and deepen our understanding of the expat experience. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing former U.S. Ambassador Curtis S. Chin, a business leader, board member, strategist, and public affairs and policy specialist, having served in leadership and operational positions working with the private, not-for-profit, and public sectors in Asia and the U.S. He served as the 15th U.S. Ambassador to the Asian Development Bank, becoming only the fourth U.S. Ambassador of Chinese heritage. And he's now a senior fellow with the Milken Institute. He also serves as a board member for several companies and institutions focused on Asia. And Curtis is one of my dearest friends for several decades now, and I'm super excited to have him here with us today to talk about living and working in Southeast Asia. Welcome, Curtis. Woohoo, Stacey. Great to be with you. Absolutely. I've known you for so long, it seems. Uh, but if people will see us, they know how young you really are. Uh, but yeah, it's been an amazing last 15 years working in Southeast Asia, you know, from the Philippines uh, to now where I am mainly in Thailand, Singapore, and Indonesia. But what an amazing experience, which I hope some of our listeners will be able to take advantage of too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Great part of the world. And one of the objectives of this podcast is to provide a sense of the careers that are out there. You have done so much. You've got lots of really big, impressive titles. But can you give us a sense, just kind of quickly, a summary of what you do? Yeah, you know, it's funny as I think about, you know, how we first uh, met in the world of public relations where we often got that question, what do you do? What is PR? Um, and I get it today. And partially it's because what I live now, you know, I'm calling it a portfolio life. You know, I've been blessed, as you noted, to have many experiences across different sectors, government, not-for-profit, um, and of course, uh, the corporate world. And so what I'm doing now is a mix of different kinds of jobs, all based around this nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank called the Milken Institute uh, in Asia, based out of Singapore, you know, back in the U.S., out of Los Angeles, New York, and now uh, South Florida. Um, but their work, and so thus my work, is we focus on trying, hopefully, to have an impact, bringing people together, whether it's institutions or philanthropists, you know, people with access to capital with money, and trying to link them to prospects for a new company, a new philanthropy. You know, a lot of what we do is focused on the notion of, you know, you might have a great idea for a business or, or you know, even a, a charity, but sometimes if you don't have access to capital, to money, sometimes it just remains an idea. So my focus, bringing people together, convening people with the end goal of impacting policy and hopefully making people's lives day to day at least a little bit better. That's wonderful. And you've been able to do that, of course, because of everything that you've done beforehand, kind of kind of leading to this point. And as you look back on your career and everything you've accomplished, you know, what do you see? What are you most proud of? Well, one, I have to say, you know, how cool it is to serve your own country, you know, to be a U.S. ambassador. You know, that job I had uh, came up under the U.S. Department of Treasury, not the U.S. Department of State. And basically, I sat 
in Manila, in the Philippines. And the Asian World Bank is kind of like an Asian version of the World Bank. So really trying to help Asian countries, you know, move out of poverty, develop their economies. And so to be able to sit on the board of directors of that bank and say, yeah, uh, we're going to lift people out of where they are right now to a better life. And the U.S. is going to be, you know, part of the solution. And there I would say actually kind of what I'm proud of, too, is in a way, you know, being Asian American, hopefully I was also able to address the stereotypes that people might have in Asia of what is a U.S. ambassador, what is an American. And so for students coming to the diversity that is Southeast Asia, I will say to them, too, part of the great opportunity they will have and the challenge is that people will have stereotypes of what is this young American person, what is he or she all about. And so I was able to change that and hopefully in a positive way and also have an impact on people's lives. You know, they're looking for a better way to power their homes for the whole clean energy space. They're looking for ways to improve the yields on, you know, agricultural crops. So what people eat. So how amazing that I could do that. So proud of that, but still honored to be able to do that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. That is wonderful. And loved loved visiting you when you were in Manila and uh, you were based <laughs> there in Manila and worked across the Philippines, um, Japan, China, Beijing, Hong Kong. Uh, also New York, D.C. So you've worked in a lot of different places. You're now in Bangkok working across Southeast Asia. What's it like? Well, I have to say it's so cool. Right? My world, though, has changed somewhat because of the pandemic, uh, where it's less easy to go between countries. But as of, you know, I'd say mid of this year, 2022, Southeast Asia, for the most part, is open to business or open for business. So what's it like? I might be on a plane flying to a, another country. And again, this region of 10 nations that make up what is called the Association of Southeast Asian uh, Nations ranges from a diversity of countries from giant Indonesia, you know, the largest country uh, in Southeast Asia by population and by geography, a uh, secular nation, but the largest nation in terms of having Muslims in Southeast Asia, to tiny little places like Brunei, oil-rich sultanate of Brunei. So it's amazing to be able to travel between places to see the, both the differences, but also the similarities in trying to get things done and also recognizing in some ways, you know, people still are just focused on trying to have a better life for them and their kids. You know, they don't want to be involved in all the geopolitics of the region of U.S. and China, you know, Korea and Japan. But I'd say it's just a marvelous uh, experience being based and working in Southeast Asia. Well, you mentioned some differences and similarities. What are some of those? And, you know, I don't really want you to necessarily compare. Just talk about what's it like in Thailand? What's it like in Singapore? Business etiquette, culture, even food, even some of the fun stuff. Yeah, well, I have to say, well, one, I think across the region, the food uh, is amazing. And it's funny, if you look at the flag of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, you'll see that in the middle of it are stalks of rice. You know, some people don't even know how rice is grown, but it's almost like wheat where the, the kernels or the grains are at the top. When you look at these 10 Southeast Asian nations, how they even eat rice is so different. You know, so from here in Thailand, where I'm at the moment, like if I think of just about breakfast, you know, it's kind of like a rice soup where the grains are distinct, almost like a porridge, where you might kind of put all kinds of interesting things in it, where when I'm having a traditional Chinese Singaporean, like a straight Chinese breakfast in Singapore, it might be some toast with two poached eggs. And on that toast is something called kaya, uh, which is kind of like a sweet spread. 
And so, you know, the diversity of food in this region is also amazing. So when I say that I see, you know, my fellow Americans out there in the region, people come out, I say to them, you know, explore the food. Food is a great connector to people. So even in a place that I would say is much more casual, like the Philippines, you know, Philippines was a U.S. is in essence a, a colony in a way, though technically not a colony, but the Philippines is so American from the casualness to the friendliness of the people. Where Thailand, I remember Thailand, you know, people do speak English for some part, but people really speak Thai. It's much more hierarchical, much more formal. And so I think when people begin to think about where they might want to be in the region, they really want to try and get an understanding of why do people behave a certain way? What is their history? And hopefully have a little bit of empathy and understand why they might have a stereotype, good or bad, of a young American who's come out to study English or to work or just to enjoy these amazing destinations that are Southeast Asia. Mm, that's great. That's wonderful, especially, of course, food. I've, I've dived into your <laughs> breakfasts this morning already. So so tell me a little bit more about um, business etiquette for some of our... Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what it's like in various places. Yeah. So, I mean, just again, think about the diversity of this region. So um, let's let's say Singapore. Yeah, Singapore, I don't know, 5 million people or so. They're like uh, GDP, so, the, so if you averaged out how much money people make, was well, something like $57,000, right? The average, right? Which is kind of similar to the US. And that also reflects the state of development of Singapore. So think a first world, world class, you know, a little bit of stereotypes, but a lot of truth too in that film, Crazy Rich Asians, about how developed this city-state is. So in many ways, business etiquette here is a little bit like almost, I'd say, in New York or London, world-class business cities, where they're kind of used to an American trying to shake someone's hand, you know, whether or not they would normally do that if we weren't American, they're used to it. Singapore, the business etiquette, is also one where a lot of business is conducted in English. So all of the formalities of how you do business in English, the pleasantries, people will see here. But then underneath that top layer of international business, Singapore, this amazing city-state, is a city predominantly of Chinese ethnicity, of course, but also Malay and Indian. So their own traditions and cultures in terms of how they deal with people. I'd say across the region, though, there is an emphasis on relationship building, right? There's a hunger to learn. Uh, and a hunger, again, really to make people's lives better and hopefully make some money along the way. So again, world-class international uh, city, uh, Singapore. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I go back to the Philippines, I remember very American, but also very different, too, in the sense that, you know, they were a, a real colony of uh, Spain for hundreds of years. And if one travels in the uh, Philippines, sometimes maybe you even saw the states, you'll see that a Filipino town can feel a little bit like Mexico, not Spain, because Spain ruled the Philippines from Mexico. So the town square, the church, the importance of faith and religion in the Philippines, and the names of Filipinos, they sound like Spanish. So again, so different than other parts of the region. But again, relationships are so important. And where Singapore and the Philippines, as an example, are so different. Someone would joke to me and say, you know, the, the Philippines, maybe they belong in the Inter-American Development Bank versus the Asian Development Bank, because there's a lot that seeped in from being part of the Spanish empire for so long. So, so again, if people want to come and work in the region, I'd say before you come, study the history 
of this region to and you know that's where America of course is so amazing because if you think about Asian Americans uh, in the U.S. so many have come from this region and people don't even realize that when you look at the ethnic Asian groups in the U.S. you know number one are ethnic Chinese number two are ethnic Indians but the third largest Asian American ethnic group are actually Filipinos and so I'd say you know how often have all of us in the U.S. gone out. Not just for Chinese or Indian food, but if there's a big Filipino American community, explore the culture and the history back in the U.S. before coming over here to Asia. That's wonderful advice. Great. So lots there to, to unpack for listeners, def- but definitely doing your research and diving in and really appreciating and understanding the cultures. That's great. I want to turn back to something you said about ASEAN. I know it's one of the largest um, economic blocks if you kind of pull all of the countries together. I think you said 10 plus or so. Within those, what are some of the hottest industries or types of jobs that a graduate from, say, a B school might be interested in pursuing or might be able to pursue? What's going on? Yeah, absolutely. So these 10 nations of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations may one day actually be 11 with the island uh, nation of Timor-Leste trying to get in. If you add up all these economies, I think the last ranking I saw, this is the third largest economy in the Asia-Pacific region. So, you know, of course, China, uh, India, uh, way up there, Japan, way up there, too. And this is the fifth largest group of of nations in the world in terms of economy. I think the GDP is something like 2.8 trillion people and something like 680 million people. So twice the size of the U.S. plus. And so when you think about the businesses and trends of the opportunities, again, that's where people really need to dive deeper into the specific country. So if I look at Singapore, you know, where I'm uh, based with the Milken Institute, world-class financial hub. So, you know, there's opportunities for those in the banking industry, not necessarily just traditional mainstream banking, but Singapore is also trying to be a hub for fintech. So this intersection of finance and technology, the Singapore government has what it's called like a sandbox, meaning it's a, a place to try out new policies and things in this evolving world of finance. So very world class. Think, uh, you know, it's a city. So think of New York. What are the opportunities in New York? And bring them here and think about that in uh, Singapore. But then you move to a larger country like Indonesia, more than half. Uh, or so of the uh, people economy, or about the half, I would just say, of Association of Southeast Nations. And there, and in the other large economies of the regions, which would be Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, did I, did I say Malaysia? So these are the bigger uh, nations. There, the opportunities are driven in a way because people are moving up. And so think of it as an upgrade. And what does that mean? It's so that. I might be trying to get a better car. I might be trying to get a better television. You know, do people watch television? A better phone. Or I might be trying to have new and different experiences. So as you think about how the U.S. economy grew and as people upgraded to bigger homes, better food, more opportunities in terms of schools and education for their families, that also is happening throughout this region. You know, I had an interesting lunch today with a fellow Yale School of Management, a Thai person, who's done a startup focused on the education space, you know, working through technology and online, trying to get people also to improve their English. So there are some very real examples uh, of, you know, what's hot. People are trying to move ahead. 
they need to also speak English in addition to their own native language. The actual language of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations officially is English. But of course, in every country, you need to speak the, the local language really to move ahead, particularly if you're dealing with, say, consumer marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this new graduate and his partner were, again, trying to address the reality that there's a whole bunch of young people in this region, too, that want to move up and move ahead. So they want more skills than they want to spend on different things. So I always tell people to think about the pace of change. And as you yourself got richer, what would you want to do and what would you want to buy? In many ways, that's being replicated across much of the, the I would say, almost like more middle class or, or the country with a bigger middle class in Southeast Asia. That's wonderful. Because remember, at the, the bottom end of Southeast Asia is, you know, uh, Myanmar, beautiful nation, also known as Burma, but really being torn apart by the military junta there, a return to violence. How sad for this beautiful, big uh, nation. And so I would say, you know, you should not be going to Myanmar, but clearly that's also an example of the diversity of Southeast Asia. We see what is happening in Myanmar, so uh, terrible with the military junta there. But then we also see poor countries like Laos. I've just come back from uh, Cambodia, where there was a big event focused on the issue of the looting that has taken place of cultural heritage there. Mm. And so even poor Cambodia is trying to think through how do they build more sustainable tourism? How do they bring back some of these Khmer statues and sculptures that have been sadly torn out of that uh, country? Um, But there we can think about issues related to sustainable tourism, to issues related to the impact, to community development. So a lot of opportunities there for young people from the U.S. who want to come out and bring a skill set that goes above and beyond the world of finance. So look at a nation's development and then try and think through what is the value that you bring? You know, it's much more than I'd say the old days. I want to go be an English teacher. It's much more uh, than being an English teacher. There's so much opportunity out here. Excellent, Curtis. Thank you so much. Really challenging our listeners to think much more deeply, broadly, creatively about the opportunities out there. That's terrific. That's terrific. There are going to be challenges, though, I'm sure. What are some of the ones that you have faced working internationally? Well, I see it even now because I live, you know, what I call my uh, uh, portfolio life of flying from one country to the next. I'd say to, to people, you know, I'm okay because, you know, I work with a Thai uh, company. I'm with the international think tank. It's easy for me to move around. But throughout, you know, my time in Asia, one of the challenges has been visas. You know, I always say to people, you know, you can't just show up anywhere and start working. You have to have the right visa. And so think through how do you do that? How do you handle the bureaucracy? And I remember, you know, shows you how old I am. I don't know, maybe it was like 35 years ago. When I first came to Asia, I looked at programs in the United States that would bring me to Asia for a summer. And I found one through a group called YMCA International. Um, and they worked out everything. And then they uh, brought me, sent me to Nepal, which is one reason I have such a fondness for Nepal. One of the first times I worked overseas as probably a 22-year-old was a summer spent in Nepal, but that whole issue of how do you do it, I searched, and this is pre-internet in a way, uh, through reference books and calling friends, you know, is there a way that I can get to Asia for a summer? And so I looked at the United States where there are groups, and people now have so many more uh, resources. You know, as you know, uh, GW was amazing for the resources they had. You know, what are the alumni connections? What are the groups there that help you think through, well, how do I get overseas 
versus thinking, well, I'm just going to show up overseas and look for someone to sponsor me. Right? I think that's less realistic today than the old days, particularly uh, in this still pandemic period where countries still continue to struggle to get their own citizens jobs and things as countries and economies begin to open up. Visas, for me, is one of the big challenges. That's a great piece of advice. Visas always do it legally. That's one thing that I know that I always say when I talk, as well as GW, makes makes certain that the, the students actually follow the law. That's super important. And you cannot get around doing your homework, figuring it out yourself. It doesn't matter what um, what type of resources, whether they were years ago, non-internet or not, it doesn't matter. It takes a lot of hard work, I think, to find that. So thanks for that. What else do you see on the horizon, kind of stepping back a little bit from um, working specifically in Asia? What do you see on the horizon for students, young people, young workers, even alums? What do they need to be aware of? Well, I always say to people, as you think about you yourself as an individual, you know, as a real person, not just this, you know, uh, stereotypical X years old, just graduated. Um, but think about your individual uh, differences and strengths. And what do I mean is that like for me, you know, Asian American, Chinese American, uh, there's not just one way to do things. Uh, and I remember, you know, a specific example, and I remember when I sat on the board of directors of the Asian Development Bank, or my role in a way is just we're supporting specific projects throughout this Asia Pacific region to help a country develop. And I want to get, you know, 50% of the votes of that board to support the U.S. position. And I remember the uh, Korean representative to the Asian Development Bank, a terrific guy who sadly uh, you know, passed away a couple of years ago. But he once said to me, you know, when you talk, you kind of deliver the same things that your predecessor said, which I'm sure, you know, U.S. Treasury want you to say, you know, fight corruption, you know, focus on the poorest people. But how you say it is a little bit different. I don't know if it's because you're Asian, he said to me, but I kind of want to listen to you more, right? <laughs> and so I say, I don't know, was that being Asian, but is it a different kind of style? But don't run away from, if you're a woman in Asia, you're Asia, because you hear about all these specific challenges that women might have in Asia. Don't run away from being a woman, but be aware of the stereotypes people might have, but how do you use that to your advantage? And so for, even for me, being an Asian American or Chinese American, uh, don't run away from that. Uh, I'd say to myself, with advice to me, that's part of your strength, right? And there'll be good things and bad things that come out of it, uh, but leverage it to help get things done. And so people will know you as an individual and hopefully they'll say, wow, you're so much better than these other people applying for that same job because you bring something added. So whatever it is, think about what makes you so unique from all your fellow classmates or recent alum uh, and use it to your advantage if you can. Yeah, I love it. That is great because so many times people follow the same course and yeah, embrace yourself who you are and work it. I'd like that piece of advice. Thank you. Okay. So this <laughs> is a tricky question. I know, and you could answer it probably take a long time, but pretty quick about all of the places you've been in the world, you've lived and worked. Do you have a favorite and why? You know, um, my non-diplomat uh, answer would be, I love Tokyo. I love the people. I love the food. Um, uh, and because it's like the same state of development uh, as the U.S., I never felt, oh, people want something from me, right? Because maybe I, well, we want something from each other. So I love Japan. Um, and I would go back and, you know, Japan is one of many countries that actually welcome Americans and welcome U.S. investment. So many times people are surprised when I tell them there's more U.S. investment 
in these 10 nations of Southeast Asia than there is in Brazil, Russia, India, and China combined, those famous uh, mm -hmm. BRIC nations. But my diplomatic answer to your question would be my favorite place to work all around the world would be right where I am. Uh, <laughs> I happen to be in Singapore and Thailand right now. Um, but if I were in another country working there, I'd say it's right where I am. Because then, you know, you, you make the effort to learn what is going on. You're exploring new things. And how cool is that? So whatever country you find yourself in, I hope you look at it as this is the best place to work. And now let's how do we let's figure out how we make that come true. Oh, wow. I, I wish all of our listeners to have as much optimism and excitement and energy as you do throughout throughout their careers. And Curtis and everybody will do a great job. Thanks. Well, so before, before we wrap up, um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Because this has been a great conversation. No, thank you. Well, first, I always want to give a, a shout out to you, Stacey, in a way we learn so much from each other and our own experiences and commiserating. I say to people uh, how great it is to also have a friend who's going through some of the same things. So you can help and learn from each other. So thank you, Stacy. Of course, a shout out to GW. You know, I particularly like GW because George Washington University is also the home of the Milken Institute School of Public Health, you know, the, the main school of public health, maybe the only one, I don't know, uh, in Washington. So what a great uh, university. But I'd say as a closing comment, I just want to share a, a quote uh, for you. One of the things I've done at the Milken Institute uh, is I speak regularly about, you know, the Asian creative economy. That when you're in Asia, you'll find it's not just an Asian version of the West, but Asia is creating content of its own. You know, most famous right now is probably like Korean dramas like Squid Game uh, or K-pop. So I'm going to close just with a simple quote. Uh, some people might know of this person named Kim Taehyung, uh, maybe better known as V uh, from the group BTS. But he has a quote that he often says, which is, don't be trapped in someone else's dream. And I'd say the same for everyone listening, uh, that, you know, others like me will describe their path and their careers in Southeast Asia and what their hopes are. Um, and you might think, oh, I want to do that, too. And you may want to. But don't feel trapped in how someone else did it. Don't feel trapped in terms of this is what success is. Because um, at the end of the day, you know, I hope that you get your own dream to come true, whether or not it includes studying uh, and working in Southeast Asia, um, it could well be a dream back home in the U.S. that just involves Southeast Asia. That's terrific, too. There's no one path uh, to go forward. Great. Wonderful advice. Thank you so much, Curtis. Um, great advice. Um, the whole conversation has been fantastic. An absolute pleasure talking with you today. I really, really appreciate you taking the time because I know, I know still you are a very busy man. So thank you for that. And um, just, just great catching up. Thank you. You have been listening to the GW Cyber Global Careers Podcast. Join us again next time. And in the meantime, go global.